right, y'all. Welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Show. All right, you guys. Introducing Clint Ehrlich, uh, most recently known for his Twitter threads on Ukraine and Russia issues, and Kazakhstan for that matter, here in the last few weeks. Um, But he is a computer scientist and a lawyer and a former visiting researcher at MGIMO University. Uh, And you can find him on Twitter, at Clint Ehrlich, and it's E-H-R-L-I-C-H. And in fact, we'll start with this. When I uh, first looked you up on Twitter, I spelled it wrong, and the first thing I found was prop or not from years ago, (laughs) calling you a Russian agent, and which has been a real heavy theme going on this week, judging by your retweets and quote tweets there of uh, all these influential people accusing you essentially of being uh, on a list of communists in the State Department or something like that. Um, when you can you can see the, the quality of their research, given that they can't even spell my name right. Yeah, seriously. Um, which goes for me, too. But then again, I got it right pretty quick, and I spelled it right since then, so that's good. Um, but now, so let's start with all the attacks. They're all attacking you, and they're saying that Listen, you explain something from Russia's point of view instead of from only the American point of view on TV, and that's an unforgivable sin. But also, you were in Russia when you did so, and so clearly you're Putin's puppet acting as his agent, all these things. So I'll just give you an opportunity to respond to all of that if you would like, please. Well, I, I appreciate that, Scott, and I'd like to note that the the attacks actually increased yesterday. The the Washington Post ran an article after my appearance on Tucker Carlson where they condemned Tucker for having me on, and they included a, a false accusation that I had been paid by the Russian government while I was in Moscow. Uh, they said that I had worked at a think tank there, uh, and then I complained, and they uh, they were forced to actually to retract that portion of the story and to admit that that was not true. The, the real irony is that while I was living in Russia, I was published in the Washington Post. So, uh, and they, they knew that. They credited me. My byline was a, a visiting researcher at, um, at MGMO University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's really funny to even see how uh, over the course of just five years or so, uh, they've gone from being willing to, to publish uh, my stuff uh, to now portraying me as some sort of villain, because while I was in Russia, I had the gall to write about foreign policy uh, and Russia's perspective on uh, on America. And at the, at the time, I thought that I was really providing a, a service because I was a, a visiting researcher at MGMO. For those who don't know, uh, it's often called the Harvard of Russia. It's really more like a cross between Georgetown School of Foreign Service and West Point because it is run by the Russian government, but it doesn't train people for their military. It trains their diplomats. And so I was a visiting researcher there. I had the opportunity to talk to people in their foreign ministry to try to find out what their perspective was. Uh, And I shared that in an article in foreign policy, which is now being branded as 
pro-Putin just because I sounded the alarm that the Russians were, were very worried that Hillary Clinton was leading the U.S. towards a, a war with Russia. And so it's amazing how if you sound the alarm, if you share the perspective of another nation, that's apparently enough to make you a foreign agent these days. Yeah, absolutely right. Which is funny because uh, that would mean we have a real scandal since our current head of the CIA was the guy who wrote the State Department document that Manning uh, leaked and Assange published titled Niet Means Niet about their meeting with Sergei Lavrov, his meeting with Sergei Lavrov, um, where Lavrov told him that in very polite terms, we will do anything to keep Ukraine out of NATO. And you need to understand that. And you need to tell the people back home how serious we are about that. And he's running the CIA right now. So I guess that makes him a mole and a traitor. And uh, you and him ought to be strung up together. I mean, it, what's what's really wild is they're 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 making very concrete accusations, saying that I'm being paid by the Russians today, that I'm on you know Vladimir Putin's payroll, and it's just it's wild because uh, my money right now comes from the U.S. government. I'm actually I'm paid by the the National Science Foundation. They gave me a grant as a, as a researcher to do my work, and so these people are really operating in almost a, a parallel universe and. They portray themselves as serious people, but they're buying into what are baseless conspiracy theories. There's yeah. literally no evidence to support this idea that I'm being funded by the Russians. But as soon as they see a dissenting view, they're willing to throw out those kinds of claims. Right. So where are you from and what exactly was your purpose of going there to study? Uh, so uh, I, I'm from uh, Los Angeles. Uh, I, I went over there uh, to work on my, my language skills uh, and also because originally um, I was interested in doing uh, doctoral work on the Status 6 torpedo, uh, and I, which was it's a, a, a Russian intercontinental uh, nuclear torpedo. It was experimental uh, at that time. Uh, and so I was interested in, in doing work basically in the, the field of, of arms control. Uh, I pivoted while I was there. Uh, I saw the Russians were, were maybe uh, not thrilled about all the questions that I was asking uh, about their <laughs> their torpedo, uh, and so I realized maybe this wasn't the the best thing to study, and so uh, I ended up working on uh, international securities law uh, while I was there. Uh, and so, really, I mean, this idea that I was an intelligence agent uh, just doesn't comport with reality. Uh, then I, I came back to the states. I uh, I, I invented a new blockchain technology and decided that that was what I wanted to pursue. And so I came back to America uh, and uh, have been uh, working uh, on that. But then when I saw that uh, events were uh, leading us into the direction of conflict with Russia and that people weren't speaking out, I felt an obligation to use my platform on Twitter to sound the alarm. Yeah. And I, I never anticipated the scale of the response that would happen. I was in, in Moscow at the time when I posted that first thread about Kazakhstan. Uh, I did go and, and visit Russia's foreign ministry at, at MGMO at the time just to, to talk to my contacts there to see uh, what their views of the, the situation were. Uh, and people really were amazed, I guess, to have this outside fresh perspective on the crisis in Kazakhstan. That thread went completely viral. Several subsequent threads have gone viral and, and pretty quickly I found myself on, on Tucker Carlson's show, doing an inter interview with him, but it's really been a, a whirlwind. Yeah. Well, you sure don't sound like you're concerned that the FBI counterintelligence division is hot on your tail here or anything like that. So I think <laughs> we can stop wasting time with 
this kind of ridiculous red herring argument accusation. Well, I mean, I, of course, I, I do want to point out it's a, it is a real problem for me though. I mean, yeah. I, I working in, in the, in the private sector, when, when people make these kinds of, of accusations, uh, publicly about me, it, it certainly doesn't help my, my company. It doesn't help me to, to raise funds. It doesn't help me to advance my career. And so that's the real irony that when they say, how much are you paid for making these media appearances? The, the answer is this is really directly detrimental to my career. It would be much better for me to just sit down and shut up and only work on computer science. I'm, I'm really putting myself on the line by doing this because I think that it matters and that people deserve to hear the truth. All right. So now let's get to it. What exactly is your point here that you want the American people above all to understand about America and Russia's relationship right now? The, the main point that I want people to understand is that there's a non-trivial risk of nuclear war and that we're flirting with it, that we're advancing closer and closer to conflict with a, a power that has more nuclear weapons than any other country in the world, and that we're that the reason for that is because of NATO expansion. Decisions that we made in 2008 in declaring that Ukraine was going to be a member of NATO. And so now there's this inertia that's propelling us towards conflict because that was a horrible decision and we're not willing to back down mm. over it. And so you, people can complain and say, well, you know, morally, uh, don't you think uh, that Ukraine should have a right uh, to join NATO? Uh, or don't you think that it's wrong uh, for the Russians uh, to engage in the, the conduct that they're engaging in? And, and my point uh, is that this is really about uh, American lives and about, frankly, the lives of everyone on Earth, because people have just trivialized the, the concept uh, of, of, of nuclear war. Uh, the, the Russians right now are talking about taking measures that would be truly reminiscent of a, of a second Cuban Missile Crisis. They're, they're threatening to potentially... Uh, deploy strategic forces to Venezuela and Cuba. And what people don't realize, I'm, I'm sure that you realize this, but many of your listeners may not, uh, is that the first Cuban Missile Crisis was not resolved effortlessly, smoothly, in a way that was a credit to American foreign policy. Instead, we came as close as possible to destroying the entire world. During the first Cuban Missile Crisis, when we dropped depth charges on a Russian submarine, there was a, a vote on board that submarine. It was a two-to-one vote in favor of, of responding with a nuclear torpedo, which would have set off, likely, a global nuclear war. And it was a fluke that uh, Vasily Arkhipov was on board uh, that submarine. He voted against using the nuclear torpedo. Uh, and so that, that one vote basically saved the, the world because they needed unanimous consent. But this time around, if we have a, a future conflict with Russia, we might not get so lucky. There might not be a hero like Vasily Arkhipov who's available to save the day. And so I'm trying to sound the alarm and say, if you care about the fate of the world, that this kind of pointless aggression is something that you need to oppose. Hmm. Now, one thing that you said to Tucker Carlson I thought was important was that NATO doesn't even want Ukraine anyway. Well, who exactly do you mean by that when you say NATO doesn't want them? Well, uh, I mean, I think that that broadly within the alliance, I don't know that there's anyone today that that supports the extension of, of Ukraine uh, into NATO. Not that even America. Join, not even America. 
Not even America. I mean, that's I, look. I, I didn't have an opportunity to to correct Tucker, but in his his lead-in, he keeps saying that uh, America, you know, is pushing Ukraine into NATO, and I think that that's really not an accurate summation of the the situation. Uh, I think it's better to say that America has dangled the prospect of NATO membership in front of Ukraine with no real of intention, no real intention of actually following through, because Ukraine does not come close to meeting the criteria for membership. Uh, in NATO, but because we're not willing to admit that we were unserious uh, when we adopted the Budapest Memorandum and said that they were going to join NATO, we've we've created this this crisis over a state that we don't even want in the alliance. Mm-hmm. And now Merkel's gone now, and I don't know enough about politics in Germany to know about the stance of the new guys. I actually read a thing about their new Green Party leader is a real kind of Hillary Clinton type center left hawk, but. Um, yep. I know that in the past, the Germans and the French both made it very clear that whatever the Americans thought, Bush or Obama or anybody else, that they would use their veto power to keep Ukraine out of the alliance. Well, and and I would say that actually in in 2008, um, it was Germany uh, and France that opposed that declaration that Ukraine and, and Georgia were going to be added into NATO. They tried to warn the Bush administration, don't do that. It would be a strategic mistake, mm-hmm. and it was the United States at, at that juncture that really pushed strong, pushed strongly to include that language. Uh, and so now it seems like we're stuck with it, and we sh- we should have listened to them at the time. Yeah, hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, the audiobook of my book Enough Already: Time to End the War on Terrorism is finally done. Yes, of course, read by me. It's available at Audible, Amazon, Apple Books, and soon on Google Play and whatever other options there are out there. It's my history of America's war on terrorism from 1979 through today. Give it a listen and see if you agree. It's time to just come home. Enough already. Time to end the war on terrorism. The audiobook. Hey guys, I've had a lot of great webmasters over the years, but the team at expanddesigns.com have by far been the most competent and reliable. Harley Abbott and his team have made great sites for the show and the Institute, and they keep them running well suggesting and making improvements all along. Make a deal with expanddesigns.com for your new business or news site. They will take care of you. Use the promo code SCOTT and save $500. That's expanddesigns.com. Hey guys, Scott Horton here for Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. As you may know, the audiobook of my new book, Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, is finally out. It's co-produced by our longtime friends at Listen and Think Libertarian Audiobooks. For many years now, Derek Sheriff over there at Listen and Think has offered lifetime subscriptions to anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org donate or to the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org donate. And they've got a bunch of great titles, including Inside Syria by the late, great Reese Ehrlich. That's listenandthink.com. You know, I hate all this diplomatic language. People are so constrained by some prepared words on paper where they say, well, you know, we would never let another country, Russia or anybody else, close the door on NATO membership for someone. When it's the point, obviously, is just that, well, yeah, but that's just your construct of the whole thing. You don't have to phrase it that way. You could be the one closing the door on it, or you could just... And in fact, this is... One of the major points, isn't it, that on the December 30th phone call, if I have it right, I think I do, 
Biden assured Putin that we're not going to bring Ukraine into NATO any time in the next 10 years anyway. So he's obviously not going to put that in treaty form. But that's a pretty big promise and extends past even his second term in office if he wins one. And so, you know, I talked with Ray McGovern, the former uh, director of the CIA's Soviet division back from, you know, in the 70s and 80s, I guess. Um, and his thing was that Putin's demand that America promise to not bring Ukraine into NATO now officially or sign a treaty like that, that that was always the big ask. What he really wanted was a handshake kind of acknowledgement that we're, as you said, that we're not bringing them in now any more than we were under Trump or under Obama. We're just, you know, they said that and they're not willing to walk it back, but they're also not willing to go forward with it. But that the real point of contention was the missiles. And they wanted assurances that we're not going to put the anti-missile missiles, as we put them in Poland, into Ukraine because they have their launch from the MK-41 missile launcher that can also launch Tomahawk cruise missiles. And so that seemed to be the real point of contention. And Wendy Sherman had said, I forgot, I'm sorry, the exact quote, but she had indicated that actually, yeah, we made some real progress on missiles and... Um, you know, we'll see what happens next time we meet. And after all, it was just Trump that got us out of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty a couple of years ago. So I don't know if they'll get right back in the treaty, but they might agree to start abiding by it anyway, so to speak, if you know what I mean. Seems like, don't you think the there's, crisis well, there, has there's been so many points a bit? To, there's, well, I, I think that the, the, the Russians are playing their, their cards um, very close to the vest. And so I would I would hesitate to, to speculate and say that I can understand exactly what their end game is. I certainly think that it was there was a misperception in the United States that when the Russians published their their draft treaty with the US and their their draft agreement with NATO, that that was an ultimatum in the sense that they needed to get everything that was in those documents. That obviously was not the case. Lavrov himself said, this is not an ultimatum. We are open to negotiations. Now, he did then sort of sub subsequently issue uh, an ultimatum about Ukraine and NATO, saying that Ukraine cannot ever, ever uh, join NATO uh, and calling that a an absolute red line for Russia. Now, the, the question is, as you alluded to, well, Ukraine and NATO be, may be a, a red line, but what is the extent of the guarantees that would be required in order to reassure the Russians that Ukraine isn't going to come into NATO. I, I would highlight one difficulty with the, the proposal that, that you've alluded to, the sort of handshake uh, agreement. Uh, and part of it is that Ukraine is currently significantly improving its military capabilities. They're developing domestically uh, missile systems that could target uh, Russian cities. Uh, and so Russia is, I think, worried about its, its the, the future. Uh, and, and looking ahead uh, towards potential crises. So maybe in, in 10 years when, when that promise uh, expires, even if the promise uh, were maintained, then Russia would be facing a situation where uh, Ukraine might uh, join, join NATO. Uh, and at that point, the Russians' ability to intervene uh, and to stop that would be significantly degraded from what it is today. Uh, and so I think that we're right now in a really volatile dangerous situation because the Russians feel like if they're going to use their military to stop this, and by the way, 
I'm not in favor of that war either. I'm like when I when I say that I'm I'm anti-war, that includes being against the the Russians intervening. I'm just dealing with the reality of the situation. But the reality of the situation is that the Russians may perceive there being a diminishing window of opportunity for them to militarily intervene in Ukraine to carve out a, a buffer within the state. And so mm-hmm. that's what I think makes this situation right now particularly dangerous. I, I would note you mentioned the. Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, and I would note that our withdrawal from that really makes the the present crisis with with Russia even more dangerous, uh, and that the accusations that we hurled at the the Russians, claiming that they were in violation of the treaty, were were largely spurious. The the, the Russians' position uh, was that they were following the direct text of that treaty, and they were. The text of the treaty categorizes missiles uh, in accordance with their maximum range. And so the, the Russians had missiles that exceeded the, the, um, the minimum range that was required under the treaty in order to not qualify as intermediate-range nuclear forces. Our position was, well, even though they have a sufficient maximum range, they have the capability to be used at a shorter distance and that therefore that's a treaty violation and essentially arguing that the spirit was violated rather than the law and look the russians certainly would have been amenable to further arms control negotiations where the text of the uh, of the agreement was was modified uh, in that respect uh, but instead we just accused them of being in breach when they weren't uh, and we threw away a uh, an agreement that really could have stabilized the current situation at least with regard to those nuclear weapons yeah and, you know, when I talked with uh, Charles Freeman about this, he explained, and there are other sources, too, that the Russians were deploying these supposedly medium-range treaty-busting missiles along their frontier with China. They weren't deploying them in Europe at all. And that the real reason the Americans wanted out of the treaty is because they also want them for use against China, not for Russia Correct. and Europe. But they also Correct. want to put them in Japan and South Korea and whatever they can, you know, uh, Guam or wherever. Uh, and so... That was what it was all about, was both sides just want to pick on China, so they broke a tree that was keeping medium-range nukes out of Europe. Exactly. No, and, and that's what really a, a problem with a lot of these, these legacy arms control agreements, is that as China rises and becomes a potential superpower, these bilateral agreements that we have that don't include China then become uh, harder to uh, adhere to because there's this incentive for both sides to pivot their focus towards China. The problem is that we, we aren't done with direct confrontation between the, the U.S. and Russia. So when we throw away those agreements and we're looking towards the, the future in regards to China, it ignores the fact that today we would really benefit from mm-hmm. having that kind of stability in our ongoing relations with Russia. Mm. All right. Now, so I was going to ask you, but I guess you already answered um, about, well, what's changed since back in 2015, the Donbass region voted to join Russia and asked very politely to, and Putin told them, yet. And so, uh, and he could have simply just redrawn the border with a magic marker right then, I think. He had enough special operations guys on the ground there to, to pretty much enforce his will there. And he didn't do that. And so why would he do that now? America's been sending in a lot of Javelin anti-tank missiles and light arms and trucks and things, as far as I know, uh, training up. And, and please comment on this. Uh, stay behind forces. There's the reports about the CIA and... I guess special forces training them uh, for possible war. But you mentioned that Ukraine is working on their own medium-range missiles. Not that they have nukes, but that they're working on their own medium-range missiles. And and that's not just anti-tank missiles, but um, tactical weapons for use across borders. That um, 
you think that's the window that's closing that's forcing the issue to Putin now? I, I think that that's I think that that's one of the the windows. I think that our ongoing training of the Ukrainian military uh, is also closing the window. That's not just being done with special forces and the CIA, although obviously for the state behind forces that you mentioned, those are the the tip of the spear. But there's also really widespread conventional training of mm-hmm. the Ukrainian military. Our National Guard cycles through the um, combat training center there. Uh, and so they have a like a uh, every month, essentially, like a new battalion uh, that that goes through uh, and does joint combat uh, exercises uh, with us. And so there's this ongoing modernization effort of the Ukrainian military. Uh, that's one of the things uh, that is um, cl- maybe closing uh, that window. Uh, you know, a- another factor is that Russia, um, due to our withdrawal from the, the ABM treaty, essentially developed this new set of uh, of super weapons, so to speak, at the strategic level, uh, and you know that includes the hypersonic Zircon uh, missile. Everyone was was so uh, freaked out a couple months ago uh, when China uh, did its uh, hypersonic uh, missile test around the world, but that was only a, a glider reentry vehicle. And Russia actually has a maneuverable uh, hypersonic cruise missile. Uh, and so for the the first time since arguably certain periods of the Cold War, I would say that Russia has really leapfrogged the United States at the strategic level. That It may actually have a fairly significant advantage uh, in strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, and so that frankly may have bolstered Russia's confidence. It may now view itself as holding a, a much stronger hand uh, in conflict uh, with the United States or in, in negotiations, not that it would necessarily use nuclear weapons, but that that, that threat uh, is there. Uh, and so it may feel uh, emboldened. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm back to the nuclear torpedo because that was announced by Putin at the same time. I'm sorry, was it 2018 or 19 he gave the big speech and said this is what you get W. Bush for pulling out of the ABM treaty? I believe that was 2018. Uh, and then it was the uh, the nuclear-powered cruise missile with essentially unlimited range, he claimed, the hypersonic glider you mentioned, a new heavy MERV rocket that he said would go around the South Pole and hit Florida or Texas that way, and then with enough warheads to kill every city in Texas in one shot there. And then the nuclear torpedo, which was going to be your expertise, but I bet you got quite a bit of the way there. Tell us about that. I, I did get quite a bit of the way there. Uh, you know, primarily what that is uh, now, you know, it's called Poseidon, uh, is a a weapon uh, that circumvents uh, America's missile defense system. So no matter how good our missile defense systems may be in the future, uh, and even though it's our position that we are not uh, trying to, to target Russia with missile defense, the reality is that we're working on anti-MERV, you know, multiple independent reentry vehicle systems, which are pretty obviously targeted at Russia. So no matter how advanced those systems may be, uh, the reality is that they aren't going to work uh, under the ocean. Uh, and we don't have the, the sonar coverage to even be able to detect uh, where these torpedoes are in the ocean uh, in order to, to target them. And, and water is, uh, is such a, a dense uh, medium compared to, to air that the, the range of the signals that you send underwater is, is so limited that building that kind of, of sensor, away, sensor array uh, is really infeasible. And so the idea is basically just to take advantage of the, the oceans to be able to, to bypass uh, America's defenses. I think what's interesting is that there was really huge alarm in the United States about 
the the nuclear torpedo, the intercontinental nuclear torpedo being announced, that there was this fear acting like the Russians were were crazy in order to deploy a system like this. And part of what I was working on at MGMO was an argument that, that this was actually a fundamentally stabilizing weapon, because if you compare it to a, a nuclear, uh, an intercontinental nuclear missile, uh, where if you fire it, then you only have a, a matter of minutes uh, until uh, it hits its target. Uh, and so in the case of accidental launch, uh, or in the case of uh, a um, misidentification uh, of launch, you have the potential to uh, instigate a, a crisis really rapidly. A slow-moving uh, torpedo gives you the, the leeway where if this thing gets launched, you could have uh, hours or even depending on, on where it's launched from, days to cooperate with the other side to try to resolve the crisis, to locate the uh, the, the system uh, and destroy it. Uh, or uh, if it's still uh, operational, uh, to have it uh, commanded to, to turn around. And so I think that it's actually a much safer weapon in many regards than traditional ICBMs. But it's interesting, it sort of shows how numb we've gotten to the idea of nuclear war and ICBMs, that we, we hear about ICBMs so much that I think people don't freak out about them. And the idea of a nuclear torpedo causing tsunamis around our coastlines uh, really struck a, some sort of deep psychological chord, I would say. Yeah. All right. Now, um, I guess let's change the subject to Kazakhstan. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm missing something here on Ukraine. Well, yeah, no, I want to go back to Ukraine real quick. Just okay. how alarmed are you right now? Because I guess I was feeling a little bit better about it after reading Ray McGovern there, talking with him, that it was um, really the I'm... missile deal that they wanted to hear, you know. But I understand what you're saying about that they still have reasons for concern. I'm pretty alarmed because I think that the United States has been offering the, the missile deal behind the scenes and that that has not altered Russia's behavior significantly. And that mm -hmm. the fact that Russia is going ahead with these quote unquote drills um, in, in Belarus, the, the fact that I'm hearing uh, Russian reservists being called up to to staff up um, their 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 units. Is that um, confirmed? That uh, I, I, I don't. I mean, I, I can't say it's confirmed, confirmed, but uh, there's a lot of noise about yeah. that, enough okay. that I, I think that it's true. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and and so, look, those may be precautionary measures. Uh, and the Russians, uh, the Russian position is, by the way, that they're worried about the Ukrainian military uh, using force right now in the Donbass region uh, and that these are these are these are defensive uh, measures uh, in case they need to, to intervene to stop uh, a significant Ukrainian offensive. Uh, so my point is not so much that it's clear that the Russians are preparing an imminent uh, invasion uh, of Ukraine. It's just that there's enough that continues to, to happen uh, to make me concerned. And, and I, look, I, I'm very sympathetic to uh, the view that um, that Ray McGovern uh, offered. Uh, that, that would have been my proposal, right? To, to, if I was trying to negotiate to resolve the crisis, the proposal that I would have put on the table and that I would have been, frankly, pretty optimistic about working would have been, let's have a commitment to not station missiles in Ukraine, because that's what Vladimir Putin has said he was most concerned about. That was what he highlighted in his speeches. Right. Uh, so I would hope that that would be the main concern of the Russians and that it would resolve the situation. My concern is it doesn't today, at least, seem to have worked. So, so I remain pretty concerned. All right. Now, uh, you had a pretty compelling thread about what was going on in Kazakhstan there. 
and whether or not it was or included aspects of color-coded revolution-type interference, but go ahead. Well, I think that that thread was, was largely misunderstood because my point was not so much that it was clear that what happened in Kazakhstan was a color revolution. My point was more that when we have entities like the National Endowment for Democracy that make all these anti-government grants inside unstable states, uh, it's really dangerous for us because if there is a, a revolution, then the Russians connect the dots and, and they blame us. And that it, it really is kind of irrelevant uh, whether or not uh, the revolution is, is objectively uh, caused by that kind of support, uh, whether that support is a, a partial cause. You know, people can can slice that up however they want. The, the reality is that it's, it's dangerous and destabilizing for us to provide the funding regardless, because when inevitably there is political turmoil in those states, it looks like there's the smoking gun that's left behind. So I oppose that kind of funding, uh, regardless of whether it's really effective in destabilizing governments. Mm -hmm. All right. So, yeah, let's get back to the American possible role there in a second. But give us the background about uh, Kazakhstan, because it's such an important country, and yet it's such a long way from here, as Luke Skywalker might say. Right. So uh, Kazakhstan is a, is a huge country. Uh, it's about the size of, of Western Europe. Uh, it has the, the largest uh, continuous land border uh, in the world uh, with Russia. You know, our border with, uh, with Canada is, is technically longer, but it's divided between uh, Alaska and the continental uh, United States. Uh, so that border is huge. Uh, the, the north uh, of Kazakhstan uh, contains a tremendous uh, number of, of ethnic Russians uh, and Kazakhstan is itself of huge strategic interest to Russia because it's where they have their primary cosmodrome to launch their rockets uh, and also where they do their their missile defense uh, testing. Uh, and so Kazakhstan is, a, is a, a area of great strategic interest to Russia and one that had remained relatively stable under the leadership of Nazarbayev, uh, the, the president. Um, he was he had recently uh, been replaced by his handpicked uh, successor, uh, Tokayev, uh, but there was a, a power-sharing agreement where Nazarbayev remained in control of the Security Council in Kazakhstan, and so even though he wasn't the president, uh, he was in charge of the, the military and the security forces. Did and they so even hold really, an election, or did he just hand the power over to this guy? There was nominally an election, but uh, I don't think that anyone really believes that elections in Kazakhstan are legitimate. Uh, you know, they're sort of like elections in 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 North Korea, <laughs> um, uh, they, you know, th there's something like, you know, I, I forget, 99% or, or something in, in that sphere of, of approval uh, for Tokayev uh, as president. So, um, you know, don't, I, th I may have that, that number slightly off, but that that's, it's in the ballpark. Um, and so, but what was really striking is that um, Takayev had announced that there was uh, going to be a reduction in the, the fuel subsidy that was keeping the, the price of uh, liquefied petroleum gas down, which is used not just as as cooking fuel there, but as um, gas for for automobiles. Mm -hmm. uh, and once that happened, that that scheduled reduction in the subsidy, there was a huge uh, uprising, primi primarily in Almaty, the the former capital uh, and the the largest city uh, in the in the country. But what's interesting is that even once he announced that that um, the fuel subsidy uh, would be reintroduced. 
that was not enough to, to placate the protesters. Uh, and I use protesters loosely because they, they killed a lot of people uh, and they used a lot of, of heavy weapons. Um, and so that that's where you get into this question of were they really protesters uh, or was this something more nefarious? Uh, and it, it sure looked like a, a color revolution or an incidence of an instance of hybrid war uh, because they were making these very direct political demands uh, about cutting all relations with Russia um, at the same time uh, that they were attacking key government facilities, uh, taking uh, police and military as, as prisoners. Um, and so that that would be why there was so much concern about U.S. involvement or at least Western involvement. You know, it might have been Turkey. It might have been other outside actors. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, they've got great deals on weed at thehempspot.com. The Hemp Spot specializes in Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol instead of Delta-9, so they can send it straight to you anywhere in America. Recently, a friend moved and didn't have a guy in his new town, but then he heard about thehempspot.com on my show and was saved, figuratively and literally, because if you use the promo code SCOTT, you get 15% off every order and free shipping on any order over $100. Legal jams, bud, gummies, and the rest in your state. TheHempSpot.com. Spell V-T-H-C. You guys, my friend Mike Swanson has written such a great revisionist take on the early history of the post-World War II national security state and military-industrial complex in the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy years. It's called The War State. I have to say, it's the most convincing case I've read that Kennedy had truly decided to end the Cold War before he was killed. In any case, I know you'll love it. The War State by Mike Swanson. Some of y'all have a problem. You've got chickens, but you don't want to stand around throwing food at them all day because of all the important stuff you have to do. Well, the solution to that is to get the Free Range Feeder from FreeRangeFeeder.com. The Free Range Feeder has been developed to satisfy the needs of the poultry, chicken hobbyist, and the homesteader. The convertible design allows for four different mounting methods. Go to freerangefeeder.com slash scott or use promo code scott to get 15% off and get the free ebook. Subscribe to their newsletter to immediately receive your free copy of Getting Started with Backyard Chickens. That's freerangefeeder.com slash scott. Right, yeah, it does seem like this is the, uh, the common theme. It was reminiscent. I mean, it's a correlation, not necessarily proven causation or anything, but in Syria, you had a lot of, you know, spontaneous protests as part of the Arab Spring days of rage all across the region. But then at the same time, you had guys with rifles who immediately came out and started assassinating cops. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was on yeah. from these certain prepared factions to turn a protest movement into something else. But then, you know, if you say that, then people go, oh, wah. But look at the protesters. They're poor. They live in a dictatorship. Their price of fuel was raised, and now they can't put food on their family. And so, of course, they're protesting, and you're siding with the bad guys against them when, you know, protesters are kind of irrelevant. When you have an armed insurrection going on, they're kind of, you know, beside the point in a way. Not that their complaints don't matter or their rights don't matter or anything, but it's just there's a more important story going on when you have right. these groups of people. I, I, and what do they do, right? They sack the banks and the airport and all these things. They seem to really be prepared, right? Can you elaborate right. a bit about that? Absolutely. And I, I would highlight something that was a little bit different about this potential color revolution than what we saw in Ukraine. Um, this was almost like a, an accelerated 
color revolution um, in the sense that in, in, in Ukraine uh, and in, in many of the, the prior uh, color revolutions, you had these mass protests for a very, very long time. And mm. it seemed like the goal of the protesters was to goad the security forces into using force, into shooting some protesters, at which point they could then retaliate uh, and sort of make it look like they had a you know a moral justification for using force against the government. And what happened in Kazakhstan was not that at all. The security forces were were not uh, shooting protesters. Uh, instead, in the course of about three days, you went uh, from mass protests uh, that were suppressed not particularly aggressively to then having huge uh, numbers uh, of of armed fighters, potentially jihadists, uh, although that you know that that's still a little bit unclear. Uh, who were then attacking key strategic facilities. They knew where arms depots were, and they went and, and raided them and got access to RPGs uh, and rifles. Uh, and so it, it seemed like it was very well planned. It was hard to believe that somehow protesters had just gotten incest, uh, incensed by the reaction of the government and had spontaneously figured out exactly where to attack and how to get arms. Mm-hmm. And now the New York Times you know, kind of wore their emotions on their sleeve in their news section there that says, you know, oh man, it's already not working. The Russians are coming to shore up the government. And that was pretty much the end of this revolution, huh? It, it was an incredibly uh, effective deployment by Russia. We'd never, and it wasn't just Russia, you know, it was this Russian-led security organization, the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, sort of like Russia's equivalent of NATO. They had never actually engaged in a peacekeeping operation before, and so it was really striking when immediately, uh, within hours of the request being made, they were airlifting troops into uh, into Kazakhstan, and, and they had a really brilliant strategy. They didn't want their forces to be directly engaged with protesters, potentially shooting them, uh, and so what they did was they uh, had the foreign uh, troops provide security for critical infrastructure in order to free up the Kazakh troops to then be the ones who are on the front lines with protesters or terrorists. Uh, and, and that worked really well. Uh, and the, the, essentially the, the revolution ended almost immediately. I think a big part of that also was that before many of the Kazakh security forces were defecting. Uh, you know, you, you see this in, in any uh, unstable revolution where people are trying to figure out, look, who is the victor going to be? And they try to align themselves with the victor in order to get the best treatment possible at the end of the conflict. And once Russia made it clear that it wasn't going to allow the government of Kazakhstan to fall, that signal alone, even without deploying more forces, was enough to show the Kazakh troops, look, this government is not going to fail, uh, and so it would be really a mistake for us to defect. And so the defections ended right away, and that was really the end of the revolution. Mm-hmm. All right. On the Tucker Show, you brought up George Kennan and his warnings. What's the significance there? Well, the significance is that today uh, many of, of the, the, the neocons portray themselves as, as cold warriors, but the strategy of containment that actually won the Cold War against the Soviet Union was crafted by George Kennan, uh, known sometimes as as Mr. X for his famous Mr. X article in Foreign Affairs, where he laid out the containment strategy. And what's interesting about Kennan, well, among many things, is that he was one of the most vociferous opponents of NATO expansion. Before the first round of NATO expansion happened in, in 98, uh, he said that it would have that it was going to be one of the worst strategic mistakes in the, the history uh, of the West. Uh, and then after uh, it happened, he warned that this was a, a self-fulfilling prophecy of conflict with Russia, that it would lead us towards war 
war with Russia. And when it did, the, the NATO expanders would say, see, we told you the Russians were like this all along. That's why we had to expand NATO. Uh, and he said that that just wasn't the case, uh, that the Russians would not have been so hostile if we hadn't extended, expanded our military bloc to their doorstep uh, and that we shouldn't have done it. Right. And now uh, I wanted to point this out. I'm not sure uh, who all knows this or don't, but there's this great article, which to me, surprisingly, is by Jerry Brown, you know, uh, Governor Moonbeam, they call them. I don't know that much about him, but the old governor of I've, California. I've, I've met him a few times. Okay. So he did a review in the New York Review of Books, and it was a review of William Perry's book, My Journey at the Nuclear Brink. And so in here, he talks, of course, about um, Kennan, but he also says, and I was just too young for this at the time, you know, I know all my buddies at Cato were good, Doug Bondo and Ted Carpenter and all that, but it turns out that the Butcher of Asia, Robert McNamara, hey, confessed Butcher of Asia, it ain't just me, yeah. <laughs> uh, Robert McNamara agreed that we should not be doing this, and Paul Nitza who had been Kennan's rival, uh, you know, um, Kennan wanted containment, Nitsa wanted rollback, and he was the guy that wrote NSC 68 and all of that. He also said we should not be doing this. And um, uh, there's a whole list of hawks, and I'm sorry, I'm looking at it now, there's a paywall, I tried to pull it up here, but people can look that up, put it in archive.is, and they'll show you the whole thing there. And you can see where people who were, never mind Pat Buchanan and the paleoconservatives, who also were very harsh anti-communists when the communists controlled Russia. That, but even people like Nitsa and McNamara were agreeing with Kennan and saying this is a huge mistake to do. I think that what's... Oh, what's and I'm really... sorry, and Perry himself apparently was fired. Is this right? Perry himself, I believe, was fired from the Clinton administration over his opposition to it. He was the Secretary of Defense and Clinton went with his Secretary of State and with his old uh, buddy Strobe Talbot. Yeah, I mean, I think that what's what's really interesting is that if you uh, if you look at um, the the course of, of NATO expansion, uh, and not just from the NATO expansion that's happened, but also the the declaration of the intent to further expand NATO in 2008, that the rationales that were given uh, at the time uh, don't line up at all uh, with the rationales that we see today. So in 2008, uh, when there was this proposal uh, that was adopted saying that we are going to uh, expand NATO to Ukraine uh, and to Georgia. Nobody was saying that the reason we were going to do that is because Russia, Russia was a revanchist power uh, that that was going to uh, take over these territories. Instead, the message to Vladimir Putin and the Russians was, "Look, this is this has nothing to do with you. This was this isn't hostile at all. Uh, this is just the natural development of an alliance that isn't even uh, pointed uh, at Russia." And it was the critics of it who said, look, the Russians are going to see this uh, as directed at them. And for that reason, it's going to be destabilizing. Now, that prediction was completely true. Like, it was just absolutely vindicated. We now find ourselves on the brink of this horrible conflict with Russia. And the, the advocates of NATO expansion have thrown away that prior justification saying, oh, it's not threatening towards Russia, and instead are saying, well, actually, Russia was aggressive all along, and that's why we needed to have expanded NATO. Yep. Uh, and so you really see them moving the, the goalposts to defend their own policies. Yep, absolutely right. And, of course, as you said in that famous piece, 
now word from X by Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, as predicted perfectly in the year 1998. As soon as Russia reacts, the same people say now that they won't react because this isn't about them. will say, well, that's why we had to do it because of all of their aggression. Exactly. Exactly. They said Russia wouldn't react. Uh, then Russia did. And now they say that's why we had to expand NATO. Yeah. Thanks. Crazy. Hey, I found the paragraph here. Bob McNamara, Sam Nunn, Bill Bradley, Paul Nitza, Richard Pipes and John Holdren and uh, Richard Pipes, even Richard Pipes. And uh, Robert Gates was one of them, too. The guy who had been the head of the CIA and which that was surprising to me that even Robert Gates had opposed it then. Of course, the guy that later became Secretary of Defense for uh, W. Bush and then Barack Obama. Well, I mean, these guys must have all been uh, Russian agents then, right? Obviously, anyone who exposes NATO expansion today uh, must be a Russian agent. So, you know, by the by the same logic, uh, all of these men uh, should be uh, questioned in regards to their loyalty. Yeah. I mean, that to me is just jaw-dropping, right? Richard Pipes and, hey, if Bob McNamara is telling you that what you're doing is too aggressive, you should heed his counsel. That's my idea, <laughs> you know? Alarms should be going off at minimum. I, I strongly agree. And it, and it just shows you that the, the these uh, today that the people that, that we have advocating these positions are sort of fundamentally unserious because these were, uh, you know, you, you may disagree with them significantly, but they were uh, serious thinkers uh, about U.S. foreign policy. And I think that part of what's so scary is that we've reached a point where the, the people who are in charge, the people who are, are charting the course of our foreign policy really seem to be ideologues of, of a sort that we didn't even have, that they, they're they not willing to to look at uh, at the reality of international relations uh, and, and the dangers of what they're proposing. And so I, I really wish that we had this this prior era uh, of statesmen still around to, to rein in the excesses of our foreign policy. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm sorry for keeping you so long, but I got one more question here. It goes to somebody that you quote tweeted here when they were criticizing you. Um, I forgot who which one it was, but it's the common understanding and theme, even when unstated, which is that if we had already brought Ukraine into NATO, then they <laughs> wouldn't dare try it. it. Right. This is not aggression, David, really. David it's just we're extending our security umbrella to as many people as possible so that no one will ever mess with them because then they'd be messing with us and no one will ever mess with us no matter what. And so... All that we do really here is just keeping the peace. And that clearly is the way they see it. it it's, a, it's a remarkable thing. And there's, there's so many things wrong with that argument. Uh, as you just alluded to, the, the end point of that argument is the idea that we should probably just expand NATO to the entire world uh, because then there would be no war. If we, if we just had a military bloc that uh, extended to the, the borders of the earth, uh, then there would be no conflict. Uh, a more direct response would be that one of the reasons that it was so stupid to say that we were going to add Ukraine to NATO was that it was clear that that was a red line for Russia, and so they were never going to allow it to happen. Uh, and so, yeah, maybe in a perfect world, if there was some way to add Ukraine to NATO without destabilizing Ukraine, you could argue that it would be a good thing to do. But we live in a world where Ukraine's neighbor is Russia, where Russia's vital strategic national interests uh, are, are threatened. Uh, in, their, in their view, uh, by us adding 
Ukraine uh, to NATO. Uh, and so it was clear that they were going to take whatever measures they had to uh, in order to stop that from happening. And the, the ongoing instability uh, in Ukraine is intimately connected uh, with that because Obviously, you can't add a state uh, into NATO that is an is an uh, an ongoing condition of of war because then basically you're just declaring war at the time that you add them. Uh, and so we we basically drew this giant uh, target uh, on Ukraine, saying to Russia, "Hey, come destabilize this state because we want to add them to NATO. And if you want to stop that, then you need to uh, instigate uh, conflict uh, inside the country uh, on your border." Uh, and so it's just these people are operating uh, in this hypothetical world where if Ukraine could just instantly become a NATO member state without any opportunity for Russia to intervene, that would be a good thing. But it bears no resemblance to reality. Yeah. I just well, can, can I just say quickly yeah. that as as bad as what what David French uh, was was saying is and it's pretty bad that what's what's crazier is that there was this uh, this op-ed last week that I that I mentioned on Tucker's show from uh, this woman uh, Evelyn uh, Farkas. She was right. a, a deputy assistant secretary of defense um, in the Obama administration, and she was a senior advisor to the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. And this in this op-ed in Defense One, she argued that we need to give the Russians an ultimatum that they have to leave Crimea, and that if they don't, that we should put together a coalition of the willing uh, and then force them out and. Scott, I like I don't know that I can find words to convey to your viewers how crazy this proposal is. This is a, the, you might as well uh, tell the Russians get out of Moscow. Uh, we're going uh, to invade. That is that is like how closely connected to Crimea the, the Russians are. Uh, from their perspective, it is their sovereign territory, uh, and even though they on paper have a no first use policy, I, I sincerely believe that if they were losing a conventional war over Crimea, Crimea, I think they would use nuclear weapons to defend it. Uh, and so I think that this, this woman is proposing basically starting uh, World War III. Uh, and the idea that, that people like this are involved in senior positions of, of government uh, should be terrifying to everyone. Well, she does go pretty far in here, although, you know, I heard you say that on the Tucker show and I couldn't find that part of it. There's a couple of mentions of Crimea in here. She and, it's so if you if you look at the bottom, it's that it's she doesn't say Crimea. What she says is that we have to uh, give them an ultimatum uh, about occupied territory. Right. Uh, and but it's clear that when she says occupied territory, that that includes Crimea. She considers Crimea to be occupied territory. So the ultimatum that mm -hmm. she wants to give Russia includes I, Crimea. No, I see what you're saying there. You're right. I guess the implication earlier in the article seems more like she's just talking about the Donbass and that because everybody knows Crimea is a fait accompli, right? But maybe that was just me. I think you're right. No, but, I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't. She does I don't seem to be going so. that far here. You're right. Yeah, I, I read that as her saying that we need that, 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 that is that Crimea is occupied territory and that uh, we have to roll back uh, Russia from that territory. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And she's also saying they got to get out of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, too. Right. Exactly. Everywhere. And yeah, that's just, just even though, it, you know, they're in South Ossetia on a an agreement that was signed with the European Union in the first place. So yes. it's hard to call that an invasion and aggression, really. Right. It, one would think so. All right. Well, anyway, I really appreciate your time on the show. It's been really great, and uh, I'll be following these great threads on Twitter. 
That's been, it, been my pleasure. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it, Scott. All right, you guys, that is Clint Ehrlich. It's E-H-R-L-I-C-H. And you can find him on Twitter at Clint Ehrlich. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.